Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Coming up to the end of the academic year, and um, all those that work in schools are like, yay! And all of those that are studying are like, yay! And um, one of the things that's obviously in conjunction with the end of the academic year, there are always exams. There are always exams for those who are studying. And um, how many people really like exams? Now just put your hand up if you like exams. You, you like, you enjoy exams. Praise God. Praise God. All right, so we, we're going to um, just ask you to come up and just <laughs> let, lay your hands. We're going to form a line in front of you and ask you to just lay hands. Because you're a very unique individual. <laughs> exams. The vast majority, would I dare to say, 99, 98% of us here are probably typical of most people. We don't like exams. We kind of tend to feel as though they're designed to catch us out. We kind of tend to feel as though at the end of it, we're going to be brought to shame. And so we would rather not have anything to do with exams. But the reality is that life is full of exams. Another word for an exam might be a test. It doesn't sound so grievous. You're going to have a test today. And um, there are tests in all facets of life. In fact... In modern media, we are kind of overwhelmed with tests of all different kinds. Mastermind. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. Tonight, Magnus, my specialist subject will be. And then it is whatever it is as they sit in the big leather chair. University challenge. Deal or no deal. That's, that's less of a test and that's more gambling, isn't it, really? So maybe we don't want to bring that into this. <laughs> but I want to share a, a few, um, a few um, excerpts or snapshots of some tests and, and just kind of a question and answer type scenario and just the, the, the real comical kinds of answers that people have given and just how... Under pressure, we can, we can do and say the funniest things. We can do and say the funniest things. One second. Now, I saw this email this week. And um, I thought some of these were classic examples of how I would like to say, being generous, people act uncharacteristically when placed in testing situations. 
Um, this is from, this is an example from, a, this is a real example from a, a real show um, that's on BBC Two. And um, it's the it's interchange between the, the presenter and the contestant. So the presenter says, where do you think Cambridge University is? The contestant says, geography isn't my strong point. <laughs> the presenter says, the clue is in the title. <laughs> the contestant says, Leicester. <laughs> this is taken from The Late Show, also on the BBC. What is the capital of Italy? Says the contestant, France. <laughs> Says the presenter, France is another country, try again. Says the contestant, oh, um, Benidorm. Says the presenter, wrong. Sorry, let's try another question. In which country is the Parthenon? Says the contestant, sorry, I don't know. Says the presenter, well, just guess a country then. <laughs> Sounding like he's getting a bit frustrated by this point. And the contestant's answer is Paris. After being told to guess a country. <laughs> Weakest link. Oscar Wilde, Adolf Hitler, and Jeffrey Archer have all written books about their experiences in what? Prison or the Conservative Party? <laughs> the Conservative Party, says the contestant. Oh, I like this one. This is taken from University Challenge. I think it was an old school episode with Bamba Gascoigne. And the question was, what was Gandhi's first name? Now remember, this is University Challenge. People are supposed to be going on to like run our country and all of it. <laughs> the contestant's answer was, remember, what was Gandhi's first name? The contestant's answer was Goosey. <laughs> goosey, Goosey. All right, maybe they needed some, um, some more kind of, uh, you know, academic questions. So the question was given, what's 11 squared? The contestant said, I don't know. The presenter said, I'll give you a clue. It's two ones with a two in the middle. The contestant says, is it five? <laughs> and and there's, 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 it goes on and on and on. Even in light of obvious answers, we see people giving strange responses. And so often, this is the case that we find ourselves in when we're put in a testing situation. You see, life is full of tests. Life is full of tests 
And the question is, not what happens, but how we respond to it. It's not about what happens, but it's about how we respond to it. And God has provided him the most substantial means of grace by which we're able to stand in the face of tests. Because we will be tested. Life is trying. And so turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going back in the Old Testament to look at a very strange situation to see what we can learn of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 13. And basically we're kind of arriving in the text at a point when Solomon's come to the end of his reign and life. He's gone off key and so God has said, you know what, Solomon, it's only because of your dad David that I haven't broken up the kingdom under your rule. Solomon, after all that I blessed you with, after all that I've done, you went after other gods. And so he said, you know what, things are going to be maintained in your lifetime, but once you have gone, this, this beloved nation of mine is going to be divided. And I'm going to separate all of the 12 tribes and I'm going to put them into two categories. Ten in the north and two in the south that will go by one name, being Judah. And at that point we saw things go increasingly rapidly downhill for the children of Israel. And so you had Jeroboam ruling one group in the north, and you had Rehoboam who was ruling a group in the south. And neither of them were on point. Neither of them were honoring God. Neither of them were observing his word that he gave through Moses. And so it's in this context that we see this situation arise that we're going to look at in 1 Kings 13. Let me just first read verses 1 to 6. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So, character, main character, the man of God. And he goes from Judah to Bethel, which is in the north. Judah's in the south. And he goes because he's been sent by the Lord to go. He's a man of God, right? And Jeroboam is standing there by the altar to burn incense. And then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. This is the man of God. And said, O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. 
And he gave a sign the same day saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Let me pause there. So the man of God goes to Bethel where Jeroboam had set up his own altar. Now you have to understand that God had already established that in Jerusalem would be the true expression of worship given to him. He had established how his people would worship him. God dictated that. He determined that. And we see Jeroboam basically say, you know what, I'm going to worship God, but I'm going to worship God my own way. And we see that so often. We go to people with the Bible and say, God has said. And they're like, yeah, 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 but. Yeah, 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 but. As far as I'm concerned, me and God are cool. And God understands. He knows my heart. And this is how I'm presenting myself to God. But if God is truly God, as the title suggests, that means he runs things. We talk about the sovereignty of God and that's all it means, that God runs things. As they used to, was it, was it on, um, no problem? I can't remember what show it was. They used to say, we run things, things now run we. <laughs> God runs things, and things don't run God. And neither do people. And yet, like Jeroboam, so often we have the audacity to say that we're going to come to God on our terms. And he's got to accept that. But this was the problem here. And so the man of God was dispatched to go and speak against this situation and to declare the truth of God. And furthermore, not only did he declare the truth of God, but he said, this will be the sign evidencing the fact that what I say is true. And so he says, there's going to be a king. Josiah, he's going to come and he is going to deconstruct all of your idolatry. He's going to deal with the high places. The high places were, were places where they would go, like some people had them at the end of their garden, that you had them on hills, and it's different places where people set up what they call altars. They'd build a heap of stones 
And it would be the place where they would go and worship. But in verse 2 we see that Josiah is going to sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on the altar and men's bones shall be burned. So Josiah was going to be revolutionary in his time when he came. And the man of God said, this is the sign that the altar shall be split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out as a sign of desolation. Now Jeroboam wasn't having this and so he pointed his hand at the guy, arrest him! In all of his human authority. And as he'd done that, his hand withered to the point where he wasn't even able to withdraw his hand as he had stretched it out. And as his hand withered, the sign was given and the altar was split in two and the ashes went everywhere. And the word of the Lord was proven. And so in verse 6 we see Jeroboam's response. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. It's interesting, I find. Jeroboam wanted the consequence taken away, but he didn't deal with the cause. We don't see no expression of repentance from Jeroboam. It was, please ask God to make things better. Jeroboam was supposed to be repenting at this point for his defiance of the Most High God. Seeking forgiveness. And yet, his concern was the consequence. And this is one of the reasons why when we see people who... They go and they go against the word of the Lord and they experience the consequence and then they come back and they, and they, they have sorrow. You know what? We're very, very, very cautious. We're very cautious as to how we treat that person and how we support that person and encourage that person and seek to restore that person. Because the reality is, and we all know it, we find ourselves in a place where we're actually sorry for the consequence as opposed to being repentant for our sin against God. We experience a bad consequence. And we're sorry for that. And we come back sorrowful. But it's merely because of the consequence. Rather than for the way in which we've offended a holy God. You see, regret is not repentance. We talked about this in the foundation series. Regret is not repentance. You may regret what you've done. You may regret what you've done because of the consequence it's had upon your life. That is not repentance. 
because it suggests that if you hadn't experienced a bad consequence, it wouldn't be a problem. Regret is not repentance. Repentance is the deed was wrong. Whether I experience a bad consequence or not, I've sinned against God and it was wrong. Just like remorse is not repentance. If regret is feeling sorry for what has happened to you because of what you've done, remorse is feeling sorry for what has happened to someone else because of what you've done. Judas had remorse for what he'd done to Jesus. But he wasn't repentant. He ran and hung himself. And we might find ourselves in a situation where we're sorry for the trouble we've caused someone. We're sorry for the pain that we've caused someone. But that ain't repentance. Repentance is being sorry for offending a holy God. Regardless of what it's done to someone else or hasn't done. Regardless of what it's done to me or hasn't done. Repentance says, I've offended a holy God. This ain't even my message today, but someone needs to hear this. To conclude this digression. <laughs> we so often hear people say, you know what? Leave them alone. They're not hurting anyone. As long as they're not hurting anyone, it doesn't matter. What big people do in their own house is up to them. But what about the offense to God? Who made us. Who gave us life. And so we see that it's not a case that the things that we do. By ourselves are unto ourselves. And concern no one else. It does matter. Verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God. Come home with me and refresh yourself. And I will give you a reward. Hmm. Trying to buy the favor of God, you know. But a man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. Nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. That's big talk. He's talking to the king, you know. And he's saying half of your house. This isn't someone's flat on a council estate down Brixton. This is king's palatial surroundings so we see that this brother is serious if if you were to give me half your house i would not go in with you nor would i eat bread nor drink water in this place verse 9 for so it was commanded me by the word of the lord saying you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So the Lord had instructed him. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. Don't go back the same way you came. And so he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Man of God. Job done. Represented. 
Now the story gets really interesting. Verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also said, they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him. And he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Verse 18. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. No, it's the narrator just. <laughs> in, case you, in case you weren't sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was lying to him. <laughs> Verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now you'd think that this is kind of quite straightforward. God's told the man of God not to do something. And he's been convinced by a so-called word of the Lord to go with this prophet. And so he's thinking, okay, well, maybe I've got an upgrade on my orders. And so he's gone with him. Let's look at the outcome. Verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. So at this point now you've got the man of God who went on on mission, dealt with the altar and Jeroboam, and then you've got the prophet who brought him back. Verse 21, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion, this is the man of God now, when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. 
Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. This is an intriguing tale. This is, and this is like one of them movies with a mad twist in the end. It's like watching Sixth Sense for the first time. Some of you have never seen it, so you don't know what I mean. But it's all right. This is an unexpected end to the man of God, right? I mean, the brother was so faithful. He went and he stood in the face of the king, even in fear of his own life. But he went and he delivered the word of the Lord. And God performed signs according to that which he had sent him to do. Miracles. And he left faithfully, not seeking to follow the king, receive from his goods, not even to eat or drink with him. And he went away. But because one came with a word from the Lord, he deviated from what God had told him and what he knew to be true. When I first read this, I thought I couldn't make sense of it. It was, it was very difficult for me to actually understand not just what was going on, but why it was going on. Because at first I'm thinking, okay, this second prophet that met him by the way and enticed him to come with him, he was a false prophet. Surely he was a false prophet. And so the man of God listened to a false prophet. Ah. But this, the prophet, the second guy, wasn't a false prophet. And God validated 
The prophet who enticed the man of God away, he validated what he'd done by the miracle of the lion not eating the body as it lay in the street or even eating the donkey. Now, if you watched any of them wildlife programs, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, whatever, you know that's uncharacteristic for a lion. It is against his natural instinct. It was a supernatural occurrence that the lion just stood there over the body that he had killed. Lions normally eat their prey. So I'm thinking to myself, what in the world and why? It seems, it seems almost unfair. Now we have the brackets that the prophet was lying to the man of God. But that's the narrator's insertion for our benefit. The man of God never, he never had that. So was it a case that he really and truly, genuinely thought that this was a word from the Lord? Maybe. Maybe it was a case that it had been a long day and he was very hungry and he was very thirsty. So he didn't need a great deal of encouragement to deviate and stop and get some food and some drink. But either way, we see him meet a very unexpected end. There is a huge lesson for us to learn in this. A huge lesson that is particularly important when we are in testing, trying situations. In James 1, verse 3, it says, Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, Really and truly, I could, do a, I could do a series on the anatomy of trials. I mean, literally, it's, it's something that I've been considering and meditating on and pondering and just meditating on the word concerning for a, for a while now. But one of the things I want to highlight and... The main point for us today is that when we're in trying situations, we see here in James 1 verse 3, our faith is tested. Our faith is tested. When we find that we're in a trying situation, when we're in a trial and things are hard, our faith is one of the principal things that is being tested. Now, what is faith? Faith is simply trusting God. Trusting God. And when we go through trying situations, what's most grievously and seriously tested is our trust in God. Can we trust? Can we really trust God? 
Now, how is it that we know under any normal circumstances that we can trust God? We know by his word. Turn with me to Hebrews 11, if you will. We see that God's word is the revelation of himself, the revelation of his person, the revelation of his plans and his purposes. And it is the substance of our faith. In Romans 10, Paul talks about the word of faith which we preach. And we see that Christ is the word. He is the living word. God made manifest in the flesh. All that there is to know about God is embodied in the person of Christ. And so by the time we get to Hebrews 11, we're given assurance that we have very good substance. We have evidence for our faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, verse 1. The evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So who was there when the world was created? Who was there when all things came into existence? If you were to listen to the scientists, you would think that they were. Well, we know that men evolved from a single cell organism, came out of the um, sludge, and you know, all things came from this one single cell organism and it's obvious, you know, scientific. And my question has always been, were you there, bruv? <laughs> you see, however scientific they want to be, there's always a point at which they have to stop and hold their hands up and say, we don't know. They talk about the Big Bang being that which provided the, the, the matter for this single cell organism to come into being from which all things evolved. They don't explain where the matter came from to cause the Big Bang in the first place. There must have been something at a point when there was nothing in order to cause there to be a Big Bang. And so anything that they tell us can only be taken by faith. Because we weren't there and they weren't there. It takes more faith to believe in evolution. Because it's a theory whose evidence has been disproven. 
By faith, not blind faith, substantial faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But... Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now very often this verse, is, verse 6 is blown up to, to mean more than it really is saying. If someone's going to come to God, obviously they've got to believe that God exists. No one's ever going to have a relationship with a God they don't believe exists. So if someone's going to come to God, they've got to believe that he is, and they've got to believe that he's good. That's basically what it's saying there. That he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. God is good. And we see so often that when we find ourselves in testing and trying situations, We doubt that God is good. And so, we've been single for a minute. It's, it's been a long minute. And God, you don't really seem to be hearing my prayer. Lord, are you really faithful? Or do I need to kind of take matters into my own hand and respond to the advances of that unsaved girl that, you know, she knows about you and marriage has been rough. It's been years, I've been praying, Lord. Nothing don't seem to be changing. Lord. I don't know how you could do me like this. Are you really good? My loved one, Lord, I'm praying for them and they're sick and they don't seem to be getting any closer to you. Maybe God's word ain't so consistent. Maybe it's, it's true in principle, but in practice, can I really trust it? And you see, this is what trials do to us. They bring us to a place where we are vulnerable to doubt in God. Our faith, our trust in God is tested. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Beloved, he speaks of God's people as being loved. He says, Beloved, 
Do not think it strange, the fiery trials that have come to try you. Don't think it strange. You see, trials are a fundamental part of life for all people. Not even just us as Christians. Some of us were sold a gospel that said, give your life to Christ and everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. And yet the reality is they didn't tell you that everything will be all right, but not necessarily immediately. We're born unto trial. Trials are a fundamental part of our life. And so when we go through trials, we shouldn't be surprised. And we need to guard our hearts during trials that we wouldn't listen to the whispers of the enemy, however he might dress it up. We have to be able to stand on God's word and say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Regardless of what we go through, regardless of how rugged the storm, how rough the turmoil, we stand on the word of God. You see, the man of God could have done well to take heed to what Paul said in Galatians 1. In fact, It was so important, and we don't really see Paul do this, but it was so important that Paul said it twice. Verse 8 and verse 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than that we than that we have sorry, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, verse 9. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. I notice Paul included himself. If I lose my mind, take leave of my senses, And I start coming to you talking any kind of loose talk that's not consistent with the word that has been revealed to you. Then you know what? Let me be accursed. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And the worst thing we can do in the fiery heat of trial is begin to listen to the whispers that begin to sow the seeds of doubt in our hearts with regards to the word of God. That cause us to begin to compromise our convictions. Compromising that which we know to be true being the word of God. 
It doesn't matter if someone comes and says, you know, I had a dream, you know. And the Lord is speaking through this dream. Or you have a dream yourself. Somebody says, I've got a prophecy. The Lord spoke to me and this is what the Lord would say to you. We hear some other teaching and some preaching. That's inconsistent with the word of God. When we find ourselves in trials, we must be aware that it is our faith, our trust in God that is being tested. And that we must guard our hearts, as Jesus said, with all diligence. In Hebrews chapter 1, God makes it clear that he has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Holy Word and that revelation is complete. That revelation is sealed. That revelation is final. There is nothing that can be added to God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ as recorded in the word of God. And I'm going to say that again because that's my point today. There is nothing that can be added to God's revelation of himself through the person of Jesus Christ as recorded in the word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. God has spoken, full stop. God has spoken. And it doesn't matter how circumstances make you feel. It doesn't matter how circumstances and the pain of trial may cause you to take a different view of God's word. See, sometimes we might not disagree with God's word. We just simply are content to doubt the reality of it. We're content to compromise. Or as one person said, to capitulate to untruth. To give up ground, to concede, to compromise to untruth. We will, if we do that, find ourselves like the man of God in 1 Kings 13. And I do not say that as an if, a but, or a maybe. If we depart from the word of God, we will end up like the man of God in 1 Kings 13. He departed from the word of God. 
that which was established, that which God had attested to and authenticated, had validated and verified. He departed from it. And what happened was he was tested. He was tested. God was testing him. And you know what? He flopped. And it was a serious test. Because the man came with the word of the Lord. But it wasn't the word of the Lord. Because it wasn't consistent with what God had already revealed. And this is it. God has spoken. There's nothing to be added. And God ain't schizophrenic. He ain't got a personality disorder where he kind of just, he says one thing in the word and then the next thing he just flips up and it's like, okay, I'm saying something different now. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so my exhortation to you today is to stand firm on the word of God. God has spoken in the person of Christ. He has revealed his will and his purposes in the person of Christ. Some of us are holding on to a word from the Lord that the the Lord gave us. And this word from the Lord is beyond that which God has said in his word. It might pose a possibility. But you cannot have the same confidence and the same assurance and the same conviction concerning that word from the Lord as you do in the scripture. And let me say this in love. If that word from the Lord doesn't happen... It's not because God is unfaithful. It's because you've missed God. You know the amount of people that I know that have said, God showed me that that's my husband. Only to see the man marry someone else. And even turn around and say, well, that ain't going to work then, is it? And 10 years down the road, when the person's still married, they're mad at God. God, you failed me. God, you let me down. I had a word from you. That was beyond that which scripture communicates. There was possibility in it. But it wasn't a word from the Lord. The only word that we can stand on is that of scripture. And we can be encouraged by the possibilities of God working in certain ways. But we cannot stake our life on it and build our whole future on it. Apart from the words of scripture. Does God speak today? Yes, he does. Does God speak to his people? Yes, he does. But it's merely an echo of what he's already said. He ain't saying nothing different. And he's not saying nothing extra. Revelation 19 verse 10 says this. This is such a chunky verse. It just, you, you, you'd read the chapter and just overlook it. You need to note this, highlight this, memorize this. This is not a joke. 
Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. This is John the Apostle having an encounter with an angel. And this is his response to the angel. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice that last phrase. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the definition of all prophecy. All prophecy is supposed to align with him. All prophecy that truly comes from God speaks of him. He is the essence, the spirit, the heart, the center of all prophecy. I hear man say, God's given me a word from the Lord. You're to leave your husband and marry me. cannot stand on anything other than God's revelation of himself in Christ as recorded in the word and if you don't know why you believe the Bible and, and, and you don't know that this book is the most authoritative thing that could ever you could ever encounter in your life it is the first and final authority of all belief and practice all belief, not just in the... See, what I notice is this. So often, we'll come to church and we'll receive the word and apply it to our life as it relates to our religious quote-unquote dealings. But when it comes to the other areas of our life, it's like it's not relevant. It doesn't have no application. Not so. The word of God is authoritative entirely concerning all things. Science bows to the word of God. Because only a couple hundred years ago they stopped saying that the world was flat. Be careful how you go, you're full of the edge. Job, thousands of years ago, was saying God sits over the circle of the earth. Thousands of years before science realized that. God's word is authoritative in all things. And is only that which we are able to trust. And it is only that which enables us to stand in the test and in the trials of life. 
you know, you'll really hear me share the word and not give you a quote from my grand, right? It's amazing how much you take in when you really don't think you do. From my earliest recollection, my grand's favorite song, and the song that I probably most clearly remember her singing at my earliest recollection was a very simple song. So I said, are you going to sing it? <laughs> no! <laughs> Trust and obey There is no other way To be happy in Jesus But to trust and Simple and yet profound. Trust and obey. Lord God, we thank you for your word. There's so much more that could be said, but it is sufficient for us, Lord, to know that we are simply to trust your word, regardless of what we go through, and to obey to obey what we understand, knowing that, Lord, you give us the grace by your spirit to do so. Thank you, Lord, because truly your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet, helping us not to stumble, helping us not to go off course, to go off track, to make wrong moves but we can stand stand on your word and Lord we do know that there are so many times when we go through situations maybe it's a sickness maybe it's hope a desire that we have that's unfulfilled maybe it's suffering loss Lord we realize that huh Your promises are fulfilled in the coming of your kingdom. We have a foretaste now of what is to come. But there will be a time when there will be no more lack. There will be no more failed expectations because all of our expectations will be fulfilled. At the coming of your son. And so in the meantime we remain steadfast. And immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that we don't labor in vain. And that we're not tossed and rocked left and right, to and fro by every single thing that's communicated as being of you. But Lord, we just look in your word and we trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit helps us as we yield to sound doctrine to just stand in your truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, 
continue to help us to stand in trying times, Lord. To trust your word. To be faithful and obedient. In Jesus' name. I'm no diamond ring.